Okay, hi. Um, welcome to the fourth in our series of videos about uh, COVID and capitalism. Uh, this is a course, a series of videos and discussions where we're trying to think about some of the basic ideas which help us understand what it means to live in a, in a capitalist society. Um, I always, at the start of these videos, try to define just what we mean by that term. Uh, so it's worth saying that when I talk about capitalism, I'm initially meaning something quite basic, which is really just the practice of uh, organizing whatever kind of activity you're engaged in to the end of accumulating unlimited profits you know more and more capital what cap and we can all other kind all, all kinds of other things can follow from that you can say that you live we live in a society where because everything is oriented towards the generation of profit you know there are some people have power other people don't other governments do some things they don't do other things but to keep it simple, I mean, just to understand from the start what I'm talking about when I'm talking about capitalism, it's basically that. It's basically just the the, un, the pursuit of profit without any kind of limitations. Um, and today, what we're going to talk about is the the really the role that governments do or and or can play in a society that's organised in in our ours as ours is. And we're going to look at what governments have been doing in the period of the the COVID crisis. And so I'm joined today by my friend Christine Berry, who's a writer and researcher, uh, author of a recent book, uh, co-authored co with Joe Guinan, called People Get Ready, which is a book about, which was a book kind of anticipating the possibility, or, although not only the possibility, of a Corbyn-led progressive government, thinking about you know, what kind of programmes it could try to implement, but also what kind of general political strategy people would have to engage in to ensure its success if we were to get that opportunity. So. We're going to start off by talking about the COVID crisis and, and talk about how governments have responded. And I suppose the so the first question I'd like to ask you, Christine, is just well, what? Um, how would you characterise that the the response of say, I mean, say the British government, maybe other governments as well, to the to the crisis? You know, how would you? How would? What is it you think they've done right? What is it you think they've done wrong? Um, yeah. So I mean, we're talking specifically about the British government. Um, and if we're talking in the first instance, let's talk about what they've done to support the economy, um, maybe leaving slightly separately these questions around public health and what they've done to, to sort of try and contain the spread of the virus. I think the, the good thing and the positive thing for the left is that obviously they've recognised the need for the state to step in and support the economy through things like the furlough scheme. Um, and obviously that was a, a good thing that sort of prevented an immediate wave of mass unemployment. Things would have been a lot worse if they hadn't done that. They had to go against their own political instincts to do that. And they also have acknowledged that the debts that the state took on in order to do that weren't a major concern, you know, given that we could borrow at very low interest rates. So they've basically kind of demolished the economic case for austerity there. And I think that is significant. Um, but I think we can sort of overestimate how significant that is um in a way you know partly because the political debate has been so defined by austerity for the last 10 years there was this kind of overexcitement, i think on the left in the early stages of the crisis that this was going to be a real turning point that the state you know a tory-led government was suddenly doing all these really progressive things um and i think that rests on this kind of misconception of of what it means to be progressive as basically the state intervening more Whereas I think we actually have to ask in whose interest and to what purpose is the state intervening, which I think goes back to what you were saying in the introduction, you know, your basic definition of capitalism is about the accumulation of capital. 
And if you think back to 2008 and the financial crisis, right, the bank bailouts were state intervention on a massive scale to protect and preserve the accumulation of capital to underwrite the losses of, of financialized capital in particular. Um, and then, you know, in the decade after that, you saw it didn't lead to a sort of positive progressive change in the in the political economy actually ordinary people then paid the price for that through austerity and I think you can kind of see what's happening now in a similar light right that the Tories recognized that the state needed to step in because it needed to basically underwrite and backstop the existing capitalist economy the process of capital accumulation and that's basically what things like the furlough scheme do they're trying to preserve the status quo ante you know the economy that we had before the crisis um, and similarly you know the bank of england with things like quantitative easing has been sort of propping up the capital markets and propping up asset prices um, and what they obviously haven't been willing to do and aren't really willing to do is to do things that really rewrite that political economy or challenge the interests of capital which is where you see things like the row about freezing rents playing out, for example, like the idea that we should write off rent arrears because it's not fair that tenants have borne all the burden of the crisis and landlords have borne none. Um, and so I think that's where you really see the, the limits of this kind of supposed conversion um, to progressive politics of, of the Tories in that they've accepted the need for more state intervention. But we really need to be asking what kind of intervention, I think. Right, yeah, I, I think that's really helpful, yeah. Um, uh, and I think that dis it's, it, that distinction, I mean, that it's important to keep emphasising this idea that you know, state, the state has always played a really significant role in a capitalist economy, you know, it always does. And that what the fa and that the idea that I mean the idea that there's the, the the left right distinction is a distinction between governments who don't do anything and governments who do do things. I mean, it's really a sort of myth. And it's a, but it's a really, really persistent myth, and it's a really, I mean, I remember, I always remember being in a meeting with some Labour ministers in like the dying days of the Labour, the last Labour government, and um, some of us in this meeting were sort of talking about, you know, the need to challenge neoliberalism, and they didn't understand what we were talking about, because they, their understanding of what, what they thought this word neoliberalism referred to was um, just sort of you know what economists historically call laissez-faire does not where you just don't do anything you just and uh, they didn't really have a grasp on the idea well you can have governments that are doing things but if what they're doing is say privatizing public services or uh, forcing schools to compete with each other in, in these artificial in artificial league tables or you know telling everybody in the public sector that they ought to be behaving like they're selling a service to in a competitive marketplace rather than engaged in some kind of collaborative activity then you can be doing something but it's not necessarily in any meaningful way progressive and and I think, you know, um, it's really important to note that that, that dynamic is basically what the post-war settlement was built on, right? This is what Keynes, as an economist, was all about, was kind of the role of the state in stabilising the capitalist system and managing this kind of inherent instability um, and the, the sort of inability of um, capital as a system to, to preserve itself and, and to stabilise itself. Um, and I think, in some ways, the lack of interest in in power and in shifting the balance of power which gave you this kind of very top-down bureaucratic technocratic approach to things like public ownership was part of the the limitation i mean certainly joe and i argue this in our book right this is one of the limits of the post-war settlement and one of the reasons it was so easy to unpick because it didn't really actually kind of transfer economic power and democratize economic power um to the wider mass of people in the economy and so i think it is quite easy to sort of 
romanticize that post-war era because it was better than what we've got now right you know you had more state intervention you had more powerful unions you had uh, greater public ownership and and social house building and all the rest of it but i think it is important to recognize that the goal of all of that was basically state encouraging capital to eat its greens and actually the aspirations of our movement today are bigger than that um, and so it isn't just about going back to that sort of a settlement it's about going beyond it as well all right so we're talking we've been talking about the state and government and i think it's worth just pausing for a moment and just asking well what is what do we even mean by this term like the state do you think um yeah so i mean obviously there are many different definitions of the state and there's probably like reams and reams of uh, academic work that's been written about that question. I think maybe the most useful way to think about it is like what are the things that states can do that nobody else can do um, and one of those is obviously states being the entity that controls things like law enforcement. Um, so sociologist called Max Weber talks about the monopoly on legitimate violence right so the military the police so that's one aspect of the state um, and you know on the economic front, things like the ability to raise taxes um, is the kind of thing that only the state can do. Um, and you can also think about the state in terms of where its authority and its legitimacy comes from, right? Which in these kind of modern, supposedly democratic countries is its sort of claim to represent the people and to kind of make decisions on behalf of everybody in that society, which, you know, as we'll discuss is kind of uh, a dubious and quite a, a fragile claim in the context of the UK today but in theory that is what the state represents. And so your understanding of you know do you can you do you want to elaborate a bit more on your understanding of well, what what would we want and what could we expect of sort of progressive government because I mean one thing I would ask actually you, you've just been I mean you've, you're quite critical of the sort of idea which informs a lot of mainstream left thinking even in, say, in Britain which is well that Keynesian social democrat that Keynesian model I should say whereby governments basically manage the economy in such a way to make sure there's a robust public sector there's full employment there's reasonable wages you know we shouldn't romanticize that it may have produced a relatively stable society but it did it left too much power in the hands of the of bureaucrats and capitalists it didn't really leave you feeling empowered but then if if as you say then we shouldn't romanticize that and we should aspire to a situation in fact in which we're creating institutions that um you know you know go, where which whereby government is actually empowering people in a much more democratic way to kind of manage their own lives and manage the economy what i mean what is the basis for thinking we can even do that you know in a capitalist society i mean what is the debate what it what how what would that look like and why should we think it's sort of achievable uh just a small question then yeah. um, <laughs> uh, i feel like there's quite a lot of different questions in there so um what's the best way to to unpack it i wonder i mean you said in a capitalist society what's the reason for thinking that's achievable i guess the question is if you if you did achieve all of those things would it still be a capitalist society um and for me that's what socialist politics really is about is about democratizing capital itself it's about ownership of capital right and the post-war settlement to some degree tried to do that by putting certain sections of capital in in the hands of the state and i'm absolutely not i'm not somebody who thinks that we don't need a bigger state um or that the state isn't important for me it's about what kind of state um do we have and the democratic 
character of that state and the extent to which it, it genuinely kind of puts power in the hands of people. But I think it, it's also a kind of bigger question about how far we have an ambition to replace a system based on, on private capital accumulation with a sort of more democratic, more dispersed ownership of capital itself. Um, and I think in terms of what that actually means, um, I think it is useful to go back to what you were just saying about about debt and finance capital, actually, because so I'm I'm sort of rambling around here. A no, little no, bit. no, no. Um, you know, when we say that the the state is about protecting the interests of private capital, I think increasingly it's important to to understand that we really are talking about finance capital, um, speculative capital, and and sort of ownership of assets and increasingly financial or financialized assets you know which includes houses house prices which are so like bound up with the whole system of mortgage lending and the banking system um and this is kind of a, a particularly uk problem but i think you know let's just look at the, the boris johnson government right with things like brexit one of the weird things that's happening is that you're seeing actually a tory government that is kind of quite willing to piss off large swathes of, of what I would call more sort of productive capital, um, you know. Uh, Meaning like factories, like, people who actually make yeah, stuff. People who own factories, people who own businesses that, that make stuff, right, which is traditionally, you know, if you're thinking about 19th century industrial capitalism, that's what you kind of mean mostly by, by capitalists. And actually, like, with the politics of Brexit, the weird thing that has happened, or one of the weird things that's happened, is that the Tories increasingly have been kind of quite willing and have got away with pissing off a lot of those capitalists. But the people that they really haven't been willing to piss off and the people that like very clearly this government is on the side of is kind of speculative financial capital, people like property developers, people like banks. You know, you see this with the, the Robert Jenrick scandal, right, and Richard Desmond. Um, the property developer who was kind of fast-tracked to build stuff because he was a Tory donor. You know, like, these are their people. These are their people, really. Um, and that's the section of capital that that they are primarily about protecting. And I think increasingly that's the kind of capital our economy is organised around. It's people who own stuff, what I would call rentiers. So, like, people like landlords who can extract rent from other people by virtue of the fact that they own assets. So they're not putting that capital to work to produce things that are useful and then sell them to people. They're basically just sweating those assets and using them to extract money from other people in the economy, whether that's houses, whether it's our energy resources, water, um, whatever else, it, you know, even the money supply itself, you know, the banking system, and they can then charge interest on loans. So for me, the task is to democratize those forms of capital um, to prevent them being used to sort of extract rent from the majority by a minority and put them to work for the benefit of everybody um, and shift towards an economy that is much more centered around meeting human needs rather than around accumulating capital. And I think that is, you know, again, this is what makes our politics different from, from the post-war era because the, the shape of our economy is different from the post-war era and the kind of centers of, of capital and of capitalist power are different. Um, and they're the ones that we really need to take on Okay, well, that's really helpful. But what you you talked about the need to democratise capital. So, just what would that look like? I mean, what's a policy that actually would could be enacted that that would manifest that? Is it something like you know national investment banks, this kind of thing? Oh gosh, um, this is something I'm still organising my thoughts on, and actually, I think it's something the left needs to do a lot more deep and serious thinking about because it's relatively 
new I think this idea is that the organizing principle of what the left is about and I think there are some really deep questions about what kinds of democratic ownership we want and how we achieve that um, I think for for things like housing and energy that are needed to meet our basic needs I think part of it has to be about taking them out of the market altogether so they're not they're not assets anymore in that sense like commodities that you can use to speculate with or to make money from um, they're rather kind of universal basic rights like uh, and I think this is where things like the idea of universal basic services comes from right the idea that this certain set of things that we need to meet our basic needs should be taken out of the market altogether and that's part of the reason we need the state right so there are some people who talk about democratizing the economy who think that it can be done purely through this sort of bottom-up or we don't need the state anymore we can just grow kind of community energy cooperatives or whatever um, and I'm absolutely all for community energy cooperatives I think they're great I think they should be part of a new ecosystem of how we own and control energy um, but at a kind of system level, you need the state to be able to intervene and take power away from, you know, the big energy companies that control the energy supply at the moment. Um, otherwise, you've just got those those energy cooperatives trying to compete and trying to succeed within a sort of a system that is still kind of marketized and capitalist in character. So like taking energy as an example, um, I think you know, Labour's energy policy did get very close to this, I think, in, you know, in the end, going into the last election. What I would like to see is you have the state, um, yes, kind of renationalizing certain companies in order to, um, you know, take the provision of those things back into, into public and democratic control, but rather than then um, running them as a sort of top-down bureaucratic state entity then democratizing them decentralizing that system pushing power downwards to municipalities and also kind of contracting with and engaging with um, community energy cooperatives and other forms of kind of democratically owned um, energy production so you have the state kind of playing a role in coordinating the system and decommodifying the system but then within that you've got this sort of more diverse more pluralist ecosystem of different kinds of democratic ownership um, that are really kind of putting power in the hands of people that have a stake in those resources in different kinds of ways. Yeah, sure. And we should be clear, this isn't all just coming out of your head. I mean, this is stuff that does actually happen in the world. Like people do do this. You know, Germany has gone a long way towards doing a lot of what you've described in the energy sector very successfully. You know, there are and countries as well. Yeah. Sorry? Denmark as well yeah, and implications, I think for Labour's policy on these things yeah and, and, and in Denmark historically you know energy yeah you know, energy heating costs are, are, are publicly owned yeah you know, are publicly controlled I mean heating is free it's part it comes it's part of the public you know it's paid for out of the public sector I mean historically I don't know if it still is or it's been changed but so all this is done you know this is stuff you can do and um you use this phrase decommodification which I think is useful is really useful phrase and, and commodity is just a word for anything that's bought and sold for profit and commodification is the process by which everything gets turned into stuff that's bought and sold for profit whether it's you know finding you a boyfriend or you know or you know or a chop or chocolate cakes or anything anything you can think of gets turned into a service or a good that can be traded for profit and we come to think of it you know we're encouraged to think of it it's just completely normal it's completely normal that absolutely everything should be thought of as something you can buy and sell for profit and it's not normal it's not normal for humans it's not even normal for modern humans in advanced capitalist economies actually for the amount of stuff that in a society like Britain have to be thought of as a commodity to be thought of in those ways and it also and it just doesn't do anyone any good 
I mean, where is the social benefit? I mean, I think it's interesting to think about this for a moment because um, in Britain, for example, because we have a historical member, because we have the NHS, we're still very attached to the idea of education as a public service. People even still have some experience of council housing. People are used to thinking of those things as things which might not be commodities. They might be things you can access by right as a member of a society. But I also think, well, why, you know, why should cheap wholemeal sliced bread be something that's bought and sold for profit? Like it's, it's a basic necessity. Like why shouldn't everybody just get some? It would be cheaper. It would be more efficient. Everybody needs it. And it's also just inhuman. Actually, it's inhuman that something that's that's that necessary should be produced for profit. I mean, that is. So I think decommodification is a really useful concept. One of the questions, and it is a question that you touched on a bit in your book, is well, what what are the political conditions under which that happens? Because in Britain, I mean, in Britain, basically, we keep talking about the post-war situation. And well, actually, in Britain, the historical context for that was the, the biggest social, the biggest crisis Britain has ever experienced, which was World War II. And under those circumstances, government was forced, basically, to take on a, a, a whole range of, of roles which previously people on the right had said you just couldn't do you can't use this you can't have a national health service it wouldn't work you, know, you can't have a national food service you can't do all that stuff and then we had they had to so they did it and 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 that kind of left people with an idea that well, actually governments can do things so i suppose that actually there's two questions that come out of that observation one is more generally what is it other than massive existential crises to the whole society like is, are there are there things that we can contribute to changing the broader context that make it more likely governments will be do will do good things and also to what extent has the experience of the pandemic like shifted people's ideas about what governments might or might not be able to do mm -hmm. is the pandemic one of those crises um yeah again a whole range of really interesting questions i think in terms of like having a kind of bigger picture framework for for thinking about and understanding those questions i find eric olin wright really useful i mean i don't know maybe we can put a little further reading list yeah. um, american sociologist died died this year or la late last year yeah i'm not sure recently anyway um and his last book, I think, that he wrote before he died um, is called How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. Um, and there's a very short chapter in it on the state and the nature of the state, um, which I would really recommend reading if people are interested in these kind of things, where he basically says, um, you know, there are there are two ideas in the sort of intellectual tradition and, and history of socialist thought about the state one that says the state is basically just a capitalist institution it's irredeemably capitalist it exists to you know defend the interests of capital and and another that sort of almost fetishizes the state as the sort of tool for socialist transformation we just need to like give everything to the state and then it'll all be fine um and he basically says you know if i've understood him correctly that those are both too simplistic and that in reality, states are kind of more messy and more complicated than that. And they're, they're places for political struggles and battles for the balance of power to be fought and, and they're contested. And the, the capitalist character of a state will be less to the extent that its democratic character is stronger, basically. So the more that a, a state can be held to account um, and is held to account by kind of powerful forces uh, representing the interests of ordinary people, um, the less it will act to defend the interests of capital. So, I mean, 
when you apply that to the contemporary British context right now, and, and especially English, I think it's really important actually to note this in a lot of the things we're talking about, and particularly if we're talking about the, the British state and how it's handled the pandemic, it's, it's specifically England really, where things are really bad. <laughs> and like the devolved governments in a lot of cases have kind of made full use of their powers to diverge from some of the most reckless and irresponsible things that the UK government has done. So I think these these distinctions are important to recognise. But looking at the British context, especially the English context, um, the problem that you have there is that the UK state is A, extremely undemocratic and extremely unaccountable, and B, is run by people who kind of increasingly nakedly basically exist to, to kind of a to serve themselves but b to serve the interests of finance capital um and don't really care like um about about anybody else or about um how much they piss off anybody else as long as they can get away with it and that doesn't mean that we don't have room to act right we've already seen over the summer the government has been forced into a series of u-turns a lot of which have been the result of popular pressure um but I think really that one of the lessons of the 2019 election result actually was that we've we've still got a lot more to do to kind of build um, those social bases of, of power that are strong enough and powerful enough to start shifting the kind of context uh, in which the government is operating. And like you say, you know, you can argue both in 45 and actually in 1979 um, that the, the way that states were changing the things they were doing Yes, it was partly because you had like ideologues that came to power like Thatcher and Reagan that wanted to pursue a certain political project, but there was a kind of set of conditions that made that possible, right? That kind of the previous system was in crisis, um, the balance of power was shifting. Um, and I think a lot of us thought the 2008 financial crisis would be another moment like that. And it hasn't been. Instead, we've sort of entered this like prolonged period of, of stagnation where the system is kind of increasingly decaying. Um, but we haven't quite been able to overturn it and build something better in its place. Um, and whether this crisis ends up being that that kind of a political moment, I think it's certainly much more of a teachable moment than 2008, right? Because it's affecting everybody. Like it's, it's really turning everyone's lives upside down in a very immediate way. And therefore maybe is kind of, it's changing how people think about what we want the state to do about its, you know, responsibility to support us all. Um, it's changing the way people think about what we want the economy to do actually and what we value and what's important and it seems bizarre to people you know now that like for example you know I'm in Manchester which has been under local lockdown where you can go out to a pub but you can't meet your mum in your back garden and that's because the former serves the interests of um, capital accumulation and the latter doesn't right um, so I think there are opportunities in in the current crisis for us to kind of start to to build those the roots of change really um in a way that we hadn't had time to do i think deeply enough before the 2019 election which is part of the reason that the result went the way that it did um but yeah the the circumstances are difficult i think there's no point denying that <laughs> i mean i think it's important you know i think that's really helpful and i, and I think it's i think it is important to stress I mean, I would stress even more, actually, if you look at the history of the 20th century, that the, the big shifts in policy by governments don't really, they hardly ever really coincide with kind of big elections. Um, you know, the, 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 the policies which we think of the Thatcher government implementing were, were begun by the Labour government in 1975, actually, and that preceded her. And the government, I think elections are really often just a sort of 
elections tell you something really important about what's going on in the society but what's going on is what we you know we, we call the, sh the, sh the shifting balance of forces and and um and you know really what you if if you were i mean the reason that is i was always quite pessimistic about about the prospects for a corbyn government was that i did i couldn't see any evidence that the balance of forces had shifted sufficiently to make it you know realistic to expect a, a radical progressive program and the question then is well how do you shift the balance of forces and i think i think it's not you know i think rather than just being pessimistic saying oh it's really hard you know you have to wait for a crisis i think it's well it's also the case that to some extent if you look at the historic precedents the balance of forces gets shifted by all kinds of things. They get, they get shifted by you know, mass protests. They get shifted by people joining unions. They get shifted by people just spreading ideas. You know, they get shifted by people talking to their neighbours and saying, you know, it's not it, it's not immigrants and it's not the G five COVID conspiracy causing the problems. It's excessive profits of capital. You know, and I think that um, I think the the and, and historically the role of things like the world transformed in sort of building movement. Yeah, and uh, and projects to disseminate a better understanding of what's going on have always been really important in sort of building those things and shifting those things. So I think it's not, I think rather than just being sort of, I think rather than being sort of pessimistic or fatalistic, I think it's important to acknowledge that, well, there's, there's all, you know, you, you have to do all kind, you have to do everything you can think of if you're going to contribute to that shifting of the balance of forces. And you never know exactly when you're going to reach a tipping point. Um, and it isn't just about elections. I mean, elections are not really the are not the kind of most important thing in many ways. But I suppose we've gone. I know we've gone quite long, but I wanted to we'll edit it. But I wanted to ask you what finally like to say something about well the the general condition of democracy in Britain because you talked about the fact that England in particular is extremely undemocratic, and I know you've been writing recently about the you know to, the crisis of democratic legitimacy in in england in particular in uh maybe in britain as well to the extent that the british government is only really an english government and doesn't have any has no democratic legitimacy with welsh and scottish people so um can you do you want to say something about that for a, a minute um yeah i think i think this is really important for us to bear in mind because i think you know that um we've had quite a wide ranging conversation but really what it what it all boils down to for me is that um project of socialism in the 21st century is really is about democracy and it's about democratizing the economy and also about democratizing the state and you can't do one without the other that's the kind of take home for me and so i think um it is really important for us to kind of put front and center this crisis of democratic legitimacy that we're seeing and, and not to treat it as a kind of sideshow to the main event which is the economic crisis I, I really think you can't deal with one without the other and i actually think after the 2019 election there was a moment where democratic reform and this kind of democratic crisis was on the agenda on the left in a way that it hasn't been um you know as long as i can remember in the Labour leadership contest, for example, lots of people were talking about electoral reform. We, you know, we'd started to realise actually that that democratic reform was was necessary and was a, a really vital and central thing for the left to start thinking about. You know, a if it wanted to win, but b if it wanted to transform society. Um, and I think we're in this kind of weird phase of this crisis now where, where our democracy is kind of continuing to decay all around us, whether it's the coming scandal and the kind of lack of trust and legitimacy in government that that has sort of created um, and the sort of lack of accountability that it's exposed, right? That like, that this man managed to hang on despite like 
the wave of kind of outrage and public opposition that they were facing over it whether it's this this stuff about the devolved governments um, and the kind of complete lack of legitimacy of Westminster um, in relation to the devolved administrations and that sort of crisis of the British nation state. So it's all kind of unfolding all around us, but people's minds are so occupied by the kind of um, crisis that we're living through and the pandemic and the recession that it's just kind of not top of mind for most people, I think, those things, and we've almost not got space in our brains to think about it. Um, but I think it's, yeah, it's really critical that we have a strategy for dealing with that because actually the problem is that at the moment in this perverse way, Johnson, he kind of epitomizes everything that is most terrible and most dysfunctional about British democracy. Like he's completely incompetent. He's nakedly self-serving and elitist. Um, he lies, he's unaccountable. And yet like he basically has just won an election, not really even in spite of those qualities, but kind of because of them. Like you have to remember, you know, it's very easy for people to make out like the 2019 result was all Corbyn's fault and all about what Labour did wrong. But it was deeper than that. I think like Johnson wasn't just pitching himself against Corbyn. He was pitching himself specifically against Parliament and a Parliament that was trying to stop Brexit. So it really was like very specifically a claim about replacing the sort of democratic legitimacy of, of an elected parliament with the sort of legitimacy of a, of a strong authoritarian leader that was going to implement the will of the people. Um, and that maybe helps us understand why they're still polling so bafflingly well, despite like everything, you know, despite everything they've done wrong, handing power to this unaccountable elite, like basically is kind of what people voted for. Um, and like, it's kind of scary that that he did manage to turn out two million new voters to vote for that like it really speaks to the level of contempt and mistrust in our democratic institutions um, that people hold and i think until the left reckons with that and actually offers an alternative to it um it's going to be really hard for us to take on the kind of politics that johnson represents okay thanks christine that was brilliant and uh please if you're watching this before september 23rd 2020 uh, please uh, join yourself and christine on the zoom call to discuss it at six o'clock and the next the final session in this series will be me and the aforementioned Keir milburn i think talking about freedom and why yeah, it's good